it's a particular honour for the Canadian Club and for me to welcome our guest, His Eminence Thomas Cardinal Collins, the Archbishop of Toronto. He has prepared for his new position over a lifetime. It began with his parents and the real world guidance they provided. His father was in the newspaper business as a circulation manager at the Guelph Mercury, his mother a legal secretary. And growing up in their home with two older sisters, you couldn't hide from discussions of real world problems and your responsibility to take action to make a difference. In fact, upon his appointment as Cardinal, that very same paper, the Guelph Mercury, praised the Cardinal's family for its long and unstinting tradition of selflessly serving the community. The Cardinal's interest in religious studies began in high school and was brought into focus when he attended university at St. Peter's Seminary in London, Ontario, where he earned a degree in theology. He went on to know the Vatican well, having served his church in a number of roles, especially in relation to the Middle East. But crucially, he knows us. He knows Canada well, having spent 10 years in Alberta before coming to Toronto in 1997. And during those years in Alberta, he served as Bishop of St. Paul in northern Alberta and then Archbishop in Edmonton. And whilst in Alberta, he witnessed firsthand how the boom and bust of our energy economy profoundly affects the lives of those involved. Celebrating his first Mass at St. Michael's Cathedral as Cardinal on February 29th, he challenged people of faith to step out of their limitations and to engage the world, to make a voice of faith heard throughout society. The Cardinal well understands the words of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King who said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. His eminence's life has been one of great activity, serving the Pope on special assignments in the Vatican, sitting on a panel investigating sexual abuse in Ireland. Your priorities and focus in life have been clear. Your commitment to social justice and action, your overarching theme. Cardinal Collins, the Canadian Club Podium, Canada's Podium of Record, is yours. Welcome. Thank, thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here today to speak to the members of the Canadian Club on an issue which is of great importance within our society, the encounter between faith and secularism. Secularism, of course, needs to be defined. Many hefty books have recently been written on this subject, and in this short talk, I will not go over the various permutations and combinations of the word secularism. The term secular itself simply means of this age. And it is commonly used by Christians to refer to the immediate context for the life of discipleship here and now in this time and place. For example, I'm a secular priest. I was ordained not to be a monk living outside of the bustle of the daily secular round, but rather to be a priest serving those involved in the daily struggles of this world, in the various activities that a person engages in from birth to death 
in commerce and social activity and family life, and all of the other things which come under the spiritual care of the pastor of a parish. The Second Vatican Council made the important point that the lay members of the church find their distinctive pathway to holiness precisely by engaging in this world, by being secular saints. The dogmatic constitution Lumen Gentium, which is the basic text of the Second Vatican Council that describes the nature of the church, it says, the laity have their own special character, which is secular. It is a special vocation of the laity to seek the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and by ordering these in accordance with the will of God. They live in the world, that is to say, in each and all of the world's occupations and affairs, and in ordinary circumstances of family and social life. These are the things that form the context of their life, and it is here that God calls them to work for the sanctification of the world, as it were, from inside, like leaven, through carrying out their own task in the spirit of the gospel. What is known within the Catholic faith as the baptismal priesthood of all Christians means precisely their engagement with this world, offering that up to God, as my favorite hymn says, a sacrifice of praise. The Second Vatican Council, in fact, commits the whole church to being engaged in the world of this age. The famous opening lines of the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world state this, the joys and hopes, the sorrows and anxieties of people today, especially of those who are poor and afflicted, are also the joys and hopes, the sorrows and anxieties of the disciples of Christ. And there is nothing truly human which does not also affect them. That manifesto is, in fact, acted on every day throughout the world by the disciples of Christ who are deeply involved in the secular world. This is true of people of other faiths as well. But I will speak mainly of the Christian, and specifically the Catholic Christian tradition, simply because that is the one with which I am most familiar. Christian engagement in the secular world, otherwise known as the baptismal priest of the faithful, is a fundamental element of Catholic teaching. Of course, that is not at all what secularism usually means within the discussion of faith and secularism. Secularism is defined by the Oxford English Dictionary in this way. It is the doctrine that morality should be based solely on regard to the well-being of mankind in the present life, to the exclusion of all considerations drawn from belief in God or in a future state. The term secularism itself is relatively recent. It was invented by G.J. Holyoke in 1851 to describe his philosophy. The word secular, as in secular priest, goes back to 1290. A further nuance is added in the, another version of the Oxford Dictionary. It says, the secularism is the belief that religion and religious considerations should be deliberately omitted from temporal affairs. Secularism, in this sense, it's clearly not what Vatican II is talking about. In fact, it is the exact opposite. For Lumen Gentium teaches that religion and religious considerations should be deliberately introduced into temporal affairs, as the disciples seek to transform this world with the leaven of the gospel. Here we have a clear conflict 
between two rival belief systems. For a Christian, the secular is the setting within which all of us live during our brief journey through this world. It is simply the stage, the arena of daily life. For what I might call a secularist of the strict observance, a proponent of secularism, that stage is all that there is. And so religious considerations must be excluded as superstition that will eventually be outgrown as humanity evolves. For a secularist of a more moderate type, religion may have a valuable role in the personal lives of some citizens, but in a pluralistic society, it must be banished to private life, where it will not interfere in the serene unfolding of the life of the state, which is governed by a secular ideology uninfluenced by religion. It should be noted, of course, that while secularism is often presented as a neutral framework within which the life of the state can occur, it is itself a belief system not unlike a religion. With its own doctrines and rituals, indeed it has its own priests and prophets. As the individual voices of particular faith communities are discouraged in the public sphere, secularism can become a kind of established church. I will leave it to others to articulate the secularist position more fully, but I will present today a few observations concerning the role of people of faith within a society in which both forms of secularism, the stricter and the more moderate, have strong advocates, and in which various forms of the secular argument are assumed as normative in the courts, the legislature, the media, and in the world of public opinion. I would hope that a person without religious faith or a person who believes that religious faith is a strictly private matter would nonetheless recognize the value for society of the active presence of the religious voice in the public square within the world of this age in which we all seek the common good. And so I'd like to look at three different dimensions of this. Three beneficial effects of the active presence of communities of faith within our secular society. First of all, effective charity. Numerous faith communities in our own society see faith as providing the necessary context for their heavy engagement in the life of this secular age. Their engagement arises from the vision of faith, which gives them direction and which leads them to be energized by hope in the midst of suffering and to be impelled to perform effective acts of charity. This, of course, is not the perspective of a person who believes that this age is all that there is. But look around in our society. It is the numerous voluntary associations which are motivated by a vision of a world beyond this one, which are often most active in providing practical care for those who are most vulnerable. There's a famous anecdote about a nun involved in serving the poorest of the poor in the most horrible conditions. Someone came to her and said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And she replied, neither would I. <laughs> it is that kind of motivation, guided by the vision of faith, that leads to practical charity. These communities of faith actively engaged, as are few others within this secular society, the world of this age, are essential to the well-being of our local community, of our province, of our country. This will be increase increasingly true as economic problems mount and as government budgets are cut. A second dimension 
that is provided, is reflected in these communities, faith, is healthy diversity. Biodiversity is vital for the health of forests. Something analogous is vital for the health of society. There need to be vibrant, voluntary associations of many kinds occupying the level between the government and the individual. Neighborhood, parish, local associations, all of these are small communities that operate according to what Catholic social teaching calls the principle of subsidiarity. Issues in life should be addressed first at the local level where people know one another and can see the face of those affected by decisions. This leads to people being treated as persons, not as things, which is what faith requires of those who are called to see the face of Christ in one another. Only if an issue simply cannot be dealt with at this most local level should it be handled by the higher, more distant levels of government or business, where the perspective is more impersonal. A society is healthy when a rich diversity of voluntary communities flourishes within it. The fundamental and natural small community is the family. Parents have the primary responsibility for the well-being of their children. For practical reasons, they may delegate dimensions of that responsibility to the state, for example, in the organization of educational matters. It is troubling and a sign of a society that has lost its moorings if the legislative, executive, or judicial organs of the state act as if they have the primary responsibility for the upbringing of children and override, without an extremely good reason, the rights of parents. Many different groups, very often motivated by a vision of faith, are involved at levels between that of the government and the individual. It is important as we look at the world of this age at the secular world, to foster a healthy ecology of intermediate institutions which flourish within the greater reality of the state. If those intermediate institutions and communities are diminished, leaving simply the individual and the government with little else in between, then we are all in deep trouble. A third dimension of the life of communities of faith within our society is the prophetic challenge which they might offer. When we reflect upon the role which both communities of faith and individual believers play in a healthy society, we should also consider the benefits of a fruitful relativizing of state authority in the sense that it is unhealthy for us all if government authority is seen as absolute and covering all aspects of the human condition. People of faith must obey the legitimate law of the land and are all the more motivated to do so in a democracy since they can participate in its formulation. St. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. But for one who worships God, the authority of the state is relative, not absolute. People of faith assert that limitation in temporal authority precisely because they consider that all authority ultimately comes from God. This is why the Roman emperors were suspicious of Christians, because they would not participate in the emperor cult, which was in many ways as much a political as a religious institution. They would not say Caesar is Lord. 
Many Christian martyrs offer their lives rather than accept the total authority of the state. That position can be traced back to Jesus himself. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The classic saint representing this Christian position of limited civil obedience is St. Thomas More. He was very much engaged in the secular world of his age. As a lawyer, a bureaucrat, ambassador, judge, politician, he was a true and loyal citizen. And yet, when his principles of conscience, which were guided by values beyond that of the secular world, were challenged by the king, he famously died the king's good servant, but God's first. That apparently subversive but is a sign of the prophetic spirit cherished by people of faith. On the surface, it would seem that it made Thomas More deficient as a citizen, but that is not true. The fact that the stars he steered by were beyond the horizon of his age allowed him, in fact, to contribute more fully to his community and paradoxically to be a more faithful servant of the king, more faithful than those who gave the king unreserved obedience. The vision of faith makes possible the critical distance that sometimes is controversial, but ultimately fruitful. The same phenomenon is found in other ages. The abolition of slavery came about against great opposition and against established law and public opinion because over many years, people motivated by faith persistently worked to attain that goal. The same is true of the civil rights movement in the United States. I would add that the majority in any organization or community may well be wrong. I think of a hero of mine, St. John Fisher, Cardinal Fisher, who was the only bishop in England to resist Henry VIII, as Thomas More was the only politician. Those who assert the principles of faith, even when they go against the prevailing spirit of the world or public opinion, need to do so peacefully and persistently. They propose and do not impose. To use Christian terminology, they witness. This may lead to controversy, especially if people of faith assert moral absolutes in a society attuned to relativism. They need to do so in the spirit of the great St. Francis de Sales with clarity and charity. Over time, that witness, based upon faith, can greatly benefit society. One example derived from the Catholic tradition with which I'm most familiar is the social teaching of the Catholic Church. Monsignor Pecci was a Vatican diplomat who, in the 19th century, became aware of the horrible side effects of the Industrial Revolution, when at a very young age, he was made papal nuncio to Belgium. He then returned to Italy and spent over 30 years as the Bishop of Perugia, ministering to people affected by the depersonalizing forces of his age. He was then elected Pope at the age of 68 in 1878 and lived on to be 93. He began to hit his stride at about 85. In 1891, he issued the first great papal social encyclical letter, Rerum Novarum. Since then, the social teaching of the church, paralleled by a similar movement within Protestantism, has led the church to become deeply engaged in matters secular from the perspective of faith, insisting on social justice, especially for the most vulnerable. Those who espouse secularism in the sense of the elimination of religious influence from matters of public policy sometimes forget 
that the pastors of the church and active lay people are deeply involved in this secular world, addressing questions of charity and justice day by day on the street. They walk the talk. In some countries, this has led to martyrdom. In our own country, the Antigonish movement, the cooperative movement, and the development of credit unions are all linked to the social justice tradition of the church. So in many different ways, believers are not inclined to leave their faith at home or in the sacristy, nor to agree to the secularist assertion that the public square must be purified of religious input. Individual cases are often complex, and the particular questions in which the secularist and the person of faith may disagree vary greatly. But people of faith who, if nothing else, make up a large portion of the population in our democracy will continue to propose their insights in the political process and to act through the voluntary associations without which our society would be a crueler place. Catholics believe that it is the role of the church and of the lay people and clergy within the church to be engaged in acts of charity and to attend to the questions of injustice. In the earliest stages of the social teaching of the church, this largely involved justice within nations, especially in Europe and North America. More recently, it has dealt with the global issues of justice, of the world of the Northern Hemisphere and the world of the Southern Hemisphere, and of the great suffering that is found in that portion of the world where so many people are without the basic necessities of life. And so there needs to be a dialogue of faith and secularism within the democratic con conversation in every country. Those who strongly yet politely assert their principles can do so in a way that generates at least as much light as heat. In a healthy democracy, we all need to listen attentively to views with which we disagree and to offer our own in return. There are many voices that need to be heard within the democratic conversation. And some obvious ground rules are helpful for everyone if vigorous debate is to be fruitful. First of all, we need to listen first and to understand clearly what the other person is actually saying, and if possible, to grasp the context which illuminates it. We need to avoid any kind of vague or inflammatory language which simply leads nowhere. We need to work together with people with whom we disagree in other contexts in order to see that person as a person and not as just a caricature. And ultimately, we need to rely upon the power of reason to bring us together and to lead us to where we need to go. We also need to recognize that there is a spiritual danger that can accompany the prophetic stance of boldly challenging the evils in society. It is the danger of arrogance. The one who proclaims, thus says the Lord, must be careful not to become drunk on righteous indignation. This is true of disputes within the community of faith as well as of controversy with secularists in the public square. A famous preacher deliv delivered a rousing sermon, and moments later a parishioner told him, that was a great sermon. The preacher replied, you're the second one to tell me that. And the parishioner asked, how can that be? You just finished the sermon. And the preacher said, well, the devil told me first. <laughs> so it occurs to me, though, that the prophets of secularism face the same problem. Perhaps everyone, before engaging in debate, should pray in their own way for a humble and contrite heart. When people operating out of a faith perspective, or indeed people out of operating out of a purely secular and non-faith perspective, passionately seek to address contentious issues, then there is the potential for destructive strife. One solution to that, of course, is simply to tell people not to be passionate about the issues that they're concerned with. 
Or one may say that there are no moral absolutes. If everything is relative, there's no point in arguing. That's no real solution to the problem. A much better way is to have people find ways of maintaining their clear principles and the integrity of their inner convictions passionately held, while at the same time working cooperatively with people with very different convictions in order to find some way of working through the difficulties which are there. Just as the tradition of Christian ecumenism in that tradition there have developed over the past decades an ability to fruitfully engage people of different beliefs in dialogue, we need to find a way to do this in the dialogue between faith and secularism. People on either side of this divide are not going to simply cede the public square to one another. In any case, that is not useful or fruitful in a pluralistic society. Instead, these people need to be able to come together in the democratic conversation with mutual respect. They need to learn how to respect difference without abandoning principle. And I think we can find in many ways a, a model for how to do that within the way in which ecumenism within the Christian tradition has developed over the years. The path which after much painful experience of other ways has been found to be more, most fruitful in discussions among various Christian groups which do disagree on serious matters is to grant the reality and importance of the issues that divide us, not to try to water things down. We need to seek a way forward that respects the commitment to truth of each party. Meanwhile, even though they profoundly disagree with one another, there are numerous areas in which they do agree and can work together fruitfully and harmoniously. It's interesting with it that within ecumenism in the Christian tradition right now, some of the strongest bonds are found between evangelical Protestants and Catholics who very clearly disagree on some profound matters and yet work together in peace and mutual respect. I believe that people of deep and differing faith can work better with one another than can people who have basically watered down their beliefs and are seeking the lowest common denominator. There is a project initiated by the Vatican called the Courtyard of the Gentiles based on the place in the ancient temple in Jerusalem where believers and unbelievers mingled, in which people of faith and people without faith can come together to discuss honestly and charitably the matters on which they do not agree. This could be a helpful model in our own community. In our pluralistic society, faith and secularism meet in the public square. I cannot speak for secularism, but the voice of faith is not going to retreat into the world of private devotion. So we need to be able to listen to each other attentively and to engage humbly and courteously in the democratic conversation with mutual respect for the benefit of all. My name is John Hinnon. I'm Vice President and General Manager of 680 News and a member of the board of the Canadian Club. And I have the distinct pleasure and honour to thank our speaker here today for his uh, very insightful words. And, and it's very important that uh, we hear those words today because, and they apply not only to Catholics but non-Catholics alike. And it's so important that the role of the church is always epitomized and spoken about in terms of how to create a better society and you did that again today. And thank you very, very, very much, you know, your eminence. It's also nice to have lunch with you. 
And, uh, and the reason I say that is I've had a personal relationship in the last few years that uh, he's had a, a number of people from the media out for breakfast. And I've had the pleasure and honor of attending those breakfasts the last few years. And they've given us great insight into uh, the man who is now Cardinal Collins. And, uh, you know, it's been wonderful to, to uh, certainly see how he has embraced the media. And uh, I think one of the first major political and major religious leaders to do that. And, and I thank you for that because it's given us great insight into the Catholic Church and how it operates. And those breakfasts have provided me a great opportunity to know the Cardinal personally. Uh, last year we got together and he talked about his role that he'd been appointed to recently by the Pope and that is to, um, to look into the role of social media and how the church can use social media. And yes, even the Cardinal uses social media. <laughs> you might recall last month uh, when he went to the Vatican, uh, we saw pictures of him that he had tweeted uh, wearing a Toronto Maple Leaf jersey. <laughs> and I thought to myself, is this his first miracle? <laughs> <laughs> But we all know, Your Eminence, that uh, miracles don't happen overnight, so we, we think next year. Um, you know, Cardinal Collins has, has certainly become, to me, a very caring and uh, a very gentleman man, a gentleman that I really appreciate spending some time with, uh, someone you can trust. And he's typical of all of us, though, that he does have some concerns, and, uh, and sometimes uh, he always has concerns about doing the right thing. And there's one story, and I asked Neil McCarthy if I could tell this story, and he said yes, so don't blame me. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, he always wants to make sure he does the right thing. And case in point, when he returned from the Vatican, uh, after having been elevated to the Cardinal of College, uh, College of Cardinals, uh, he was very concerned about how he was going to be greeted by the people in Toronto. Uh, not so much by the parishioners or friends and family, but by the people at customs. See, when you're appointed a cardinal, the Pope gives you a ring and vestments. Now, we all know that upon our return to Canada, we have to fill in that little form that says, how much did you receive in gifts and how much did you spend? And the cardinal was very concerned about what he would put down as far as the value of the gifts he'd received from the Pope. Now, Your Eminence, I hope you put down zero, because quite frankly, and you don't have to tell me what you put down, but quite frankly, uh, I think that those gifts that you received are priceless and you are very, very worthy to receive those. So thank you again for your great words of wisdom today, and uh, thank you again for making us proud of you, uh, and thank you again for being a friend. Thank you. Well, thank you, John, and thank you, Your Immense, for your, your remarks today. Uh, this, we are th grateful, as always, to Rogers Television and 680 News for their continuing support of our club and promotion of our activities. Uh, this program will be rebroadcast on Rogers in the day to come. So th this concludes our television broadcast, and our lunch is now adjourned. Thanks very much for being with us.